don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, politics of head garments, gandhi caps and hijabs, with Emma Turner. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Emma Tarlow, who is a professor of anthropology at Goldsmiths, uh, University of London, uh, and uh, she's the author of uh, three books, uh, Closing Matters, uh, Unsettling Memories, and, uh, and uh, vi uh, Visually Muslims. Visibly Muslims. Visibly Muslims, I'm sorry. Uh, hello Emma. Hi. Uh, so today we will talk about uh, this uh, sort of uh, political relationship that uh, uh, bodies, uh, bodies and, um, and identities uh, uh, develop with uh, clothing, and I suppose uh, by doing so we can we can kind of uh, bridge this conversation with others on archipelago. Uh, the first one being the, the very first conversation on Archipelago with Mimi T and Yuen, uh, but also a few others, and I guess we'll 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 refer to them during this conversation. Um, so we will speak about mostly two things throughout this conversation. One would be the the work you've been doing in this first book, Closing Matters, um, uh, about about uh, specifically about 20th century India. And uh, and the second thing would be your more recent work about about um, uh, uh, Muslim uh, clothing and in particular the hijab in uh, in particular in in Britain. Um, but so maybe before we really address those particular cases, could we could we discuss uh, almost? Uh, I was going to say candidly about how is it that clothing is so much associated to a body's identity. I mean, it's, it's, it's really uncanny sometimes in, in how strong this relationship to, to how, how clothing really becomes in, fully incorporated mm. to the body to the point that it, it really defines the public body we, we present to the, the society, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a curious thing because in a sense we, we pick up clothes... We put them on, so we're aware of that that they are sort of detachable and attachable. But at the same time, when we see clothes on somebody else, uh, we we take in the whole ensemble of the person and their clothes, and it's almost as you say, as if they merge into one. Which is why clothing is often referred to as a sort of second skin. And it is it is and one of the things I think that's particularly sort of compelling about it as something to sort of reflect about is the fact that. There is no sort of natural body that isn't interfered with in some way, and clothing is very much part of that uh, creation of the body as a cultural artifact. And so, in a sense, everybody is participating in this kind of performative collective uh, conversation or dance or whatever one mm. might call it, uh, whether they like it or not. I mean, they may not. People may not have a very strong desire to, you know, project a particular perspective, but nonetheless. Uh, whatever they project, they will find themselves interpreted. They'll find themselves, uh, their identities read in particular ways through their clothing. So I think that's one of the things that I find very interesting about it as a topic to work about or think about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose even in the in the very little agency that sometimes is uh, is offered, uh, there's, there's still very much... Uh, Like you would think, the greater the choice, the, the greater the, mm. the, the judgment mm. almost would would uh, would occur. But actually, that's not even the case. And I mean, mm. uh, a tremendous amount of people in the world don't really have much choice about mm. which which clothing to associate themselves to. But even even in this process, is that we find back obviously. Uh, I mean, the most the most obvious. Uh, uh, societal category mm. that would appear is obviously the, the prime of class and, uh, and and very often so the prime of gender as well. Uh, so um, it it seems like there's no there's no going around it, right? Mm. It's very much part of the producing of the the norm uh, the norm within our society. It is yes, and distinctions sort of re-emerging, so that even 
if one finds a situation where actually there's, there's very, very minimal choices as to what one can do or a certain type of clothing might be to some extent imposed. Nonetheless, people will find, I mean, you see this in Britain, you see it with school uniforms, you know, that a uniform in some sense is designed to kind of uh, uh, level uh, differences out, but people find ways of, you know, making these little differences uh, apparent so that people find ways of sort of doing something that slightly subverts perhaps what the intention of the uniform mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I guess we'll we'll go back to to schools uh, later. But I can already see how we we can already see how this is all about uh, some sort of semiotic, right? Mm. Because in uh, in Japan, uh, you would you would uh, 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 the school girls would 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 uh, um, uh, interpret the short length of their of their uniform skirts mm. as a, as a sort of subversion to mm. the to the to the authority. Whereas right now in France we see that if you if you happen to to wear a skirt uh, too long you might you might be actually expelled from your from your own uh, secondary school so so uh, it's it's as much as I like to insist how yeah, in, particularly in architecture how the physicality of things mm. is very much uh, there is obviously some sort of symbolical semiotic aspect to it but there's also a very material effect on it it seems that for clothing it is still true but mm. the semiotic of it is so strong as well mm. and i think that you, you just raised that point of also you know it's quite interesting the sort of how norms become established so degrees to which you are supposed to be covered or uncovered at particular moments mm. are actually quite strong and we don't necessarily question them until they're you know subverted at one end or the other mm. uh, so you know people wearing too many clothes as we see with a lot of the um, controversies about uh, various forms of mus- Muslim covering at the moment, uh, a sense that you're wearing too much and it's, it, you're not allowed to wear so much. But if one were to go back to uh, Gandhi that we'll, mm. we'll be talking about later perhaps, but, uh, you know, he was not wearing enough, you, mm. know, that, you know. So there's, there's a kind of norm as to, as to what is considered uh, the appropriate amount of covering that is mm-hmm. kind of sort of tends to be imbibed and then is, uh, is also sort of contested at the two ends. Uh, so yeah, I suppose let's 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 jump right into it, and and there's a sort of uh, I mean that might be a, a boring way to choosing uh, the the order, but maybe the chronological mm-hmm. order, and uh, both both for the the mm. era described and for your own for your own work. Uh, so in this book, closing matters. You were you were studying. Um, sort of politics of clothing in India before and after uh, uh, the independence of uh, of forty seven, um, and uh, and uh, it was it was really a sort of uh, evolution that that culminates uh, uh, in the end with your own field work as an anthropologist mm. in a small village in uh, when was it Gujarat? Gujarat yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, but so. So we can see how clothing politics very much um, uh, influence the sort of colonial organization, administration of life, uh, especially before the, let's say, or maybe that's, that's my own reading, but before the, the, the independence mm. struggle really or- starts to really pick up and mm. organize itself. Uh, but so you were describing the the, the semiotic of an entire population of India Wearing Western clothing as a, a sort of uh, a sort of political statement, obviously, and and uh, and some interesting uh, uh, some interesting uh, um, uh, almost burlesque uh, situation sometimes where where they would need to change mm. depending on which context yeah. and, and everything. Can you tell us more about this sort of uh, uh, very very embedded colonialism uh, in in uh, in the very beginning of 20th century. In yes. I mean, it was very interesting because European clothing was, um, you know, the British did not encourage uh, Indians to adopt European clothing and often kind of uh, mocked them and accused them of imitation if they did. But at the same time, there were so many kind of values that were embedded in, in, in European clothing in terms of notions of respectability, notions of civilization, notions of being educated, notions of modernity and so on, that um, 
Indians, and particularly Indian men from relatively elite backgrounds who were having more interaction with, with, with the British colonial administration and also more um, education through that um, European education system uh, in India, then uh, <coughs> they were often attracted to wearing uh, European clothes precisely because of all the associations that came with them. Um, but at the same time, there was a kind of ambivalent relationship to them because at some level one could be accused of, uh, you know, deserting one's background, being perhaps considered less Indian or deserting one's caste or not showing one's religious identity to the same extent or whatever. So people had a slightly um, often almost, yeah, sort of schizophrenic relationship, if you like, to to European clothing that they that they may want to have the privileges that come with it, but not necessarily be too closely associated with it, coming back to that thing of the sort of fusing of the identity of the person with their clothes. The things like, uh, you know, sort of wearing European clothes in public, but immediately changing out of them and going back into, into sort of Indian clothes within the home. So keeping some kind of distinction between, you know, public and private, sort of domestic and, and the external world was one of the ways in which um, people dealt with that. Another way was by, you know, combining, incorporating elements of European dress in combination with uh, types of Indian clothing, which the British were particularly um, despising of or, or, or mocking of uh, in the sense that they, you know, that there was this sort of stereotype of the, the Bengali Babu who was sort of half uh, um, educated and half uh, Europeanized or whatever. So um, there was a sort of uh, yeah, a sense you know there was quite a lot of sort of mockery, quite a lot of cartoons that, in a sense, were um, lampooning these figures who, 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 in a sense, as if they didn't know how to do it properly, rather than the idea that they may have actually chosen to, you know, combine things because their life was actually a combination of different cultural elements uh, in all sorts of other ways too. Mm-hmm. And so, so if we if we evolved. A way too quick way too quick quickly but I, I suppose that's why your book is here as well for people who are interested to to read it uh and and um and kind of uh, fall fall into this um uh this organization of the independent struggle um we we can um we have then a, a sort of uh, overview of um how to count each other, which is something that comes back as well in the mm. in the in the fact of adopting one piece of garments that 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 means something and that can uh, uh, allows a community to to count itself. And so we are, and so you you write about this um, the the Gandhi hat that, mm. that sort of gathers the various uh, movement of the independence uh, struggle, which we tend to when. We're not very uh, when we see that from far, we tend to think of one movement. But obviously, there was much mm. more than that between the between the the, the Hinduists, the, the Muslims, the, the mm. young Bengalis, and, mm. and Subhashan Rabas, uh, uh, maybe being a little bit more eager to to uh, use uh, violence in the independence struggle. Mm. And so we, in the end, we have like a sort of hat that gathers mm. all those people together and and allows them to count themselves. And a very simple hat, really, but uh, the, you describe in the book how actually complex yes. <laughs> it's been to really yeah. find a, a sort of design that would not that that everybody could identif- identify with. Right? Yes, I was um, when I was doing that research, I was particularly delighted to come across actually a kind of recitation where Gandhi is discussing, you know, how he tra- came across the particular form of that hat because. Um, as you say, it's it's it is extremely simple, and that was part of its appeal. It had it had to be, in his opinion, it had to be cheap, uh, because it had to be accessible to anybody. Light, you could carry it around. Um, it needed to have a form that didn't alienate anyone in particular. And 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 one of the things you know that was particularly difficult in relation to that was the fact that headwear for men was one of the key markers of difference whether it was caste difference or religious difference and so on so one of the advantages of this uh, Gandhi cap which is this very sort of simple uh, white cap was um, that it was not so dissimilar from the from what Muslims were wearing um, 
but it was also not so dissimilar to, to what certain other Hindus are wearing. It was dissimilar to sort of large turbans that incorporated, you know, huge amounts of cloth and wrapping. So it wasn't something that was immediately uh, easy for everybody to relate to in any sense. But it was a possibility. It was a. It was a. It was uh, and and the in a sense what Gandhi was trying to do was to build the symbolism of it as a possibility that actually if everybody could wear this one simple hat uh, on their head, then the possibility of even imagining a uniformity of imagining ourselves as a as a potential nation, and also um, in a sense. The fact that it was this simple form made from hand-spun, hand-woven khadi, which is hand-spun, hand-woven cloth, um, was also, in a sense, the epitome of difference to what was valorized in European clothing, you know, much more structured uh, preference for men, <laughs> very dark-coloured uh, clothes, a lot of use of black, and so on. So, it, in a sense, it also had this this sort of power of the symbolism of, of difference. You know, mm-hmm. that, that we're creating something that is on a that that really contests uh, what is uh, civilization, what is modernity, and obviously the cap was not a kind of it didn't come from nowhere. It was also part of a whole sort of campaign. Um, to uh, to uh, sort of um, promote uh, this hand-spun, hand-woven cloth, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, had all sorts of different elements to it because on uh, uh, one side, you know, the political semiotic element, the, the power of the whiteness, the power of, of this collective uh, type of clothing that everybody could share, so the, you know, the possibility of wiping out difference and actually saying we are as one, uh, was very very powerful, but there was also the economic argument, which was always much more tricky actually to articulate, which was this idea um, that if if people could um, spin their own yarn and and get their cloth woven locally, then they would not be reliant on 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 uh, on Europe. So what had been happening over the years was uh, um, that that raw cotton had been exported from India. And was being woven, uh, machine spun and and machine woven often abroad, and therefore in England in, uh, often, often in yeah. England and to some extent in other European countries as well. Mm. So it was an incredibly powerful symbol of of dependence, and uh, and and so the idea of creating your own cloth was it was was to reverse that and to say that we can be self sufficient and uh, independent but it was always quite a complicated one because uh, many people oppose they saw it as a sort of backward step the mm-hmm. idea of going back to hand spinning which had almost died out in in most of India um, you know so it was already considered something very old-fashioned so the idea that you, he was asking kind of you know even politicians and members of congress to be sitting down on the floor and and spinning their own yarn you know to many people that was quite a repellent idea mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Gore had famously said, you know, if, if man can be uh, um, restricted by um, big machines, then the danger of him being mm-hmm. restricted by small machines should not be lost sight of. Mm-hmm. That's not a perfect quote, but that's what he meant, mm-hmm. <laughs> more or less what he said. But that's interesting, right? Because that's the semiotic, the semiotic is meeting the operative in the sense that uh, we tend to forget uh, I mean, I don't know, we, I don't know who is we yeah. here, but maybe yeah. I tend to forget <laughs> uh, 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 that, that in colonialism is also very, very much uh, producing a sort of uh, economic, um, uh, it's producing a market as yes. well for the colonial yeah, goods as well. I mean, we, we mm. still see it in Palestine, in Palestine uh, uh, today. But um, uh, we we think we think of it mostly from the side of the labor, mm. but maybe not not enough, or from the side okay, even more from the side of the of the uh, resources and the mm. raw materials, and, uh, and in that case, the cotton, and, mm. and uh, we don't see it as much at the end of the at the end of the chain, and, and very expensive. Uh, uh, I mean, very dependent uh, 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 consumption of goods that yeah, sometimes would have. Could have been done just uh, mm. just there. So the the fact of actually weaving locally would allow mm. to to uh, bypass uh, the sort of colonial circuits of mm. economy, right? But the problem was, of course, that it was always uh, the the machine uh, spun 
yarn was very very cheap mm. but, and, and uh, hand spinning is a very long winded process so it was the actual economics of that was always very difficult mm. as it still is with 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 a lot of uh, hand production mm-hmm. um, something we could add about this hat is that it it's been brought back by the 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 am admi party mm. like the, the sort of uh, alternative to the bgp and the congress party in india that's been well we we hear a little bit less about them yeah now, but, but now that they gain a little bit power it's yeah. often like that but the party of the common men has, has yes. been has been trying to bring back yeah. the sort of uh, sort of hat as a symbol right yeah and i think that is very interesting because you know it it gandhi was always promoting it as a kind of non-elitist thing and something that you know anybody could 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 wear and And it's true also of, of Cardi more generally that it that it sort of even after independence when you know it was much less uh, in evidence it it retained a kind of sense of of being the appropriate garment of, of resistance uh, so you know people involved in human rights in various left wing movements artists who are often critical of you know, uh, uh, politic, doing politically critical work will often wear Cardi as, as a kind of fabric that, that through which they can sort of express themselves. And similarly, as you say, uh, these new political movements, um, in a sense, try to in, uh, incarnate that. Uh, and some people in, in, in the Ahmadmi movement were, were actually, um, you know, sort of wearing uh, caps which said, you know, I am uh, Gandhi or... Mm. Uh, And so on. So this sort of sense of of reliving or reigniting the kind of excitement of that moment of mass protest, in a sense, as the Kadi Cup has has you know sort of retained the possibility of kind of reigniting uh, that excitement, in a sense. Um, but it's interesting, you know, because it's it's between those two moments didn't disappear, but it tended to be worn by a few old men, you know, old Gandhians, mm. and in a sense went out of fashion. So one also sees the sense at which things can be recuperated in, in, in interesting ways through that. And I think Kadi's, uh, Gandhi's um, sort of symbolic work in terms of, uh, you know, what he did with his own body, this kind of uh, stripping away these garments of Western civilization as he projected it, because he began by being very westernized himself, um, you know, and going through the whole sort of westernization process mm-hmm. and then gradually peeling away these different layers. And so uh, the power of that uh, peeling away process, in a sense, um, uh, was so strong. And he was doing it not just in his own sort of bodily enactment, but he was constantly having talking about it as well. And I think that's really important because although at some level there was a, the power of the image to sort of, you know, communicate very broadly. There was also always the possibility of it being misunderstood or interpreted in particular ways. So I think the force, and there's a certain ambiguity to clothing, which is another thing that's quite interesting about clothing um, as a form, that, you know, although people read identities and feel they can read identities, there's also a huge amount of potential for... um, misunderstanding or ambiguity at any rate. And Gandhi was constantly trying to rail against this ambiguity by, in a sense, defining what his things meant, mm-hmm. writing letters, writing declarations, making speeches. Uh, you know, he was constantly talking about it as well. So it was a, it was a really sort of onslaught of, of, of symbolic kind of working that was going on both through his own bodily enactments, but also through what he was saying and, and writing. And so I think he's left such a strong imprint in terms of, The potential for those things uh, to to have meaning that 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 it that it remains there as as something as a sort of resource that can be, in a sense, recharged uh, mm-hmm. at particular moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that that's really just the first half of the book. The second half is uh, maybe uh, leaving the the street of Delhi and uh, Kolkata and and Bombay, uh, uh, and maybe. By doing so, maybe also leaving there any chance for, let's call it romanticization, maybe. And yeah. uh, and uh, and um, in this second part of the book, you you really deal with um, with a sort of life in a in a in a, I don't know if we can say like a, a generic uh, a Gujarat village, <laughs> but 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 maybe a, a village where 
things would would be happening sufficiently uh, normally to to mm. to be to be characteristic of other places in India, let's say. But since we were talking about this hat and uh, and uh, head garments in general. I'm thinking that uh, despite the abruptness of the transition, we we should we should go to this more recent work that you've been doing, uh, in particular around the, this object of the of the hijab, mm. uh, particularly in Britain, but also with a little bit of comparison with France, mm. which is uh, which really uh, I mean uh, that's not saying that. Uh, that's not saying that the UK uh, uh, is handling so much better uh, <laughs> this subject, but but uh, in France, is particular for for um, uh, through a sort of uh, religious uh, secularism uh, 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 to to really uh, be uh, particularly aggressive in the unveiling of a woman who would like to to be wearing the hijab. Mm. Uh, well. Uh, in particular, of uh, to to be a little bit precise, mm. uh, in particular in uh, so you were mentioning um, in, uh, the French schools or the legislation and, uh, against and, the wearing and, uh, of hijab schools um, in French schools. schools, and um, um, but so this was interesting for me so because you were saying maybe um, there's a common link I was common link to that in a sense it was the French um, announcement of the, the intention to, to be, restrict um, the wearing of hijab that got me interested besides uh, uh, in the topic the fact that we're still talking uh, myself as in researching it because. I began uh, it would be the sort of perception just, uh, of, of follow the response to that for, in Britain for those, and, those, uh, uh, those, and uh, through doing that also um, gained a sense of, 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 of what is it people are trying to do through wearing Muslim young Muslim women are trying to do through wearing particular types of clothing and so in a sense uh, it was that French legislation that got me <laughs> interested in the entire topic and um, and in doing that, I suppose I became aware of a lot of things. And in many ways, it sort of linked back for me to, to my work um, on, on Qadi, because one of the things that was very interesting um, in the sort of freedom movement, uh, the significance of Qadi to those who, who went along with it, was the incredible sense of solidarity that it built for people, that you could wear it, that you could, you know, cut across class divides, regional divides, uh, you know, linguistic divides and so on, through wearing the same cloth. And that maybe you weren't actually wearing it every day, but nonetheless there were moments where you could manifest yourself in public and actually feel as one through wearing the same garment. And this uh, sense of the sense of solidarity that can emerge through a kind of shared um, clothing is is something that, you know, came across incredibly strongly when I started meeting young Muslim women um, who had chosen uh, to wear um, headscarves and various other types of, of, of clothing that one might call new types of Islamic fashion that people are developing. Um, and this sense of a kind of sisterhood that could cut across um, uh, and, and move beyond your local world. So you might be being, you may be living in a, you know, say a part of London or, or wherever where there's a big Bengali community and there's a certain sense that this is what, you know, being Bengali is. But... Um, but you may also be meeting through school or perhaps through university, if you're at university or through various other networks, people from all sorts of backgrounds, people from Egypt, people from India, people from West Africa or wherever. And uh, the sense that you can kind of, in a sense, find some kind of material communication that enables you, you know, where you recognize certain shared values and you portray those shared values through what you wear in the street was something that was very, very strong to people. And certainly, you know, people who, you know, choose to wear hijab as opposed to people who may have been expected to wear it from the start. Um, you know, there, there always comes a moment in their lives where they decide, okay, this is the moment where actually I'm going to put this garment on and see what happens and, uh, and, and sort of, you know, uh, puts, make some commitment to it as a statement perhaps of commitment to Islam, as a statement of solidarity perhaps with other Muslims around the world for whatever reasons as a, as, as a way of being modest, as a way of, um, uh, as a form of worship. I mean, there's various different meanings that people may attach to it uh, as a fashion even. Mm -hmm. But... Um, the sense that, you know, 
once you adopt uh, that particular type of clothing, then you are immediately perceived in particular ways. And, you know, the two things happen. One is uh, uh, that other Muslims who wear that garment or, or something similar acknowledge you in a very different way to how they acknowledged you before. They incorporate you. They may be say hello to you in the street, salam uh, alaikum or whatever. They may, uh, you know, so there's a sense of a, a, a sort of solidarity that's very, very strong. Um, and at the same time, there's also a sense of a kind of wariness from people from non-Muslim backgrounds, not all of them necessarily, but but from from many, a, a kind of suspicion. Um, so, but dealing with that can also create a sense of solidarity, the shared solidarity of having to deal with the perception from others that you are, uh, you know, subversive or foreign or, or, or whatever it is that people in you know, read into the hijab. So, um, and this, so this was something I could, I could really sort of, for me, working on the topic and reading people's sort of narratives about what they felt wearing Qadi and, you know, the possible connections that it enabled and, and, and talking to people about what they feel wearing hijab and the possible connections that enabled. There was a real uh, link there in that sense of, of the power of clothing to, to create, you know, uh, solidarities uh, across borders. Um, and for a lot of young Muslims, in fact, it's uh, things like September 11, the Iraq war and various events that have happened have sort of opened up a kind of searching of who am I and where do I place myself in this world and with whom am I in solidarity and for many people they don't see it as a solidarity of I'm either this or that but they want to be able to combine various things and so this is what got me interested in working on Islamic fashion in fact because um, in a sense through um, both relating to mainstream fashions but incorporating them uh, and wearing them as people would say, Islamically or whatever, then people are trying to mediate these different worlds and say, okay, well, I can be Muslim and British. I can be, you know, modern and 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 religious. You know, I can I can combine things that, in a sense, in some people's perceptions, have to be kept separate. And if one goes back to Qadi, you know, you see Gandhi saying, well, you know, Qadi, maybe handspun, maybe handwoven, but it can also be our modernity. This can be the you know the clothing of the new nation rather than some old backward thing and so in a sense there are sort of similarities there um i don't know if you see those similarities but i see those similarities in working on 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 that topic of 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 combining things that that people maybe thought were not combinable Mm -hmm. well and i think there's also similarities in the fact that uh you usually need to be in solidarity when you're uh "Quote unquote under attack." So yes, like, uh, exactly. So I think yeah. I think uh, the the, the uh, many people today decide to decide also to and I, I'm I'm putting meanings here which I should not be doing, but I think I, I think many people do choose to wear the hijab today mm. as as a simple way of of, mm. of saying I exist and I exist mm. as a. I exist as a as a person of a Muslim mm. uh, either religion or mm. even culture yeah. I, uh, yeah. uh, against against yeah. uh, um, the discursive and 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 sometimes even physical mm. attacks uh, against yeah. Uh, yeah. against uh, not just Islam as a yeah. religion but as a, as, yeah. a, as a sort of yeah. entire community within within Western countries exactly and this is why I called my book visibly Muslim mm-hmm. because very often in the kind of uh, sort of negative interpretations of, of various types of covered dress. There's this idea that, oh, through wearing hijab, people, you know, they hide, they disappear, women are are, are kind of effaced to some extent. But of course if you're in a if you're in a situation where you're in a minority, then then um, to wear certain types of dress makes you more conspicuous more conspicuous rather than less conspicuous. So and a lot of what's going on with uh, you know, uh, Islamic fashion or whatever. It's about a kind of heightened visibility. Uh, And in a sense, through wearing a headscarf in a situation where um, Muslims are in a a difficult situation at the the current time in in, in, in 
say Britain or France, then um, you are you are by definition in a sense um, you become kind of hyper visible. So then, how do you manage that visibility? And what uh, so what I became very interested in looking at were in a sense those internal debates going on between Muslims as to well who has the right to decide what is our representative image if you see what I mean because obviously there's no one way of being visibly Muslim there's all sorts of different ways of doing it and a lot of young women are are in fact uh, through kind of developing new types of Islamic fashion um, they're they're kind of in a sense drawing in that that visibility but instead of being they don't want to be seen necessarily as kind of hidden away, oppressed, because very often there's the assumption that they are, uh, they want to be, they want to actually kind of mark themselves out more conspicuously. So you'll see that, uh, you know, one of the things that was interesting when you start actually looking at the sort of physicality of hijab, it starts to occupy more and more space. So there are many women who they'll take their hair and they'll tie it up in a bun behind and then they'll wrap cloth around the bun and then they'll put the hijab on the top of that so that actually your entire sort of headspace is far greater through wearing the hijab than it would be if you weren't. And so, in a, and then there's sort of different techniques of layering cloth, different uh, colors, uh, textures, there's different hijab jewelry and so on. So the whole thing becomes a kind of form of personal art, which isn't to say that it loses its significance as a religious thing necessarily or, or as an identity marker, but it also is doing something else. As you say, it's 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 being very visible, mm-hmm. and uh, and saying yes, I exist, and you know, this is what I look like. It's 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 kind of announcing, in a sense, in a, in a particular way, which is is um, different from the kind of image of of the idea of the woman just sort of covered and uh, silenced and and mm-hmm. sort of oppressed. Yeah, and I suppose that's something we had talked about a little bit with uh, in our previous conversation with uh, Hannah Tajima, who was mm. uh, uh, herself designing uh, some, uh, not not systematically, but mm-hmm. some uh, some of the clothes she designed are incorporating uh, hijab. And I, uh, as a as an anecdote, I'll, <laughs> I'd yeah. say that it, it's it's pretty interesting to see that having the statistics of how many people listen to the conversation of this program, she's been, she's been number one uh-huh. all along yeah. because yeah. many, yeah. many uh, uh, persons have been listening yeah. to, to uh, what she had to say because she's, she's, uh, she's, uh, she's famous <laughs> <laughs> she's, yeah. in, uh, in uh, her yeah. design, her fashion yeah. design. But there's a big, big sort of, uh, mm. you know, blogosphere of, yeah. of um, hijabi hijabi fashion bloggers and hijab <laughs> yeah. style bloggers and so on um but some some things that i i wanted to maybe extend mm. on on this particular uh garment as well is how and and that's where france really uh really reaches uh, extremes is uh, is how somehow the norm Mm. is transformed into a sort of uh, citizenship discourse and yes. so a legal discourse yeah. which which is definitely less the case in in countries mm. like the US and I'm suspecting like the mm. UK much mm. much lesser so too uh, and I mean you're 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 ex- you're also talking in the books about how the even the the metropolitan Lon- London police is mm. is uh, incorporating mm. a, a, a potentiality for uh, sick men to wear the the, the turban or or women to wear Muslim women to wear their hijab, but so in France we are we are confronted to uh, an overlapping of the norm and the citizen the the, the, the what they call the mm. national identity which mm. the, that that goes very very far to uh, all the way to the creation of a, of a ministry of of. Uh, of, uh, that's that was one of the first things that uh, Nicolas Sarkozy did as, as, as president in mm. 2007 is to create a, a ministry of immigration and national mm. identity which mm. uh, and there was a very very beautiful and powerful text that Edouard Glissant and Patrick Chamoiseau had written against it uh, and this this whole notion of uh, identity of national identity um, but but this is this is um, this is extremely problematic how how this overlap operates, right? It's like there is somehow we know what mm. the the, the, the normal national yes. citizen looks like, right? Yes, which attains a kind of new, well, supposed neutrality to it, and is sort of in 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 that sort of French political discourse, whatever it is taken, as you say, as as a, as a kind of uh, fait accompli, if you like. I mean, a kind of a norm that everybody would would. Uh, 
naturally recognize somehow rather than um which i find very extraordinary because you know you can either think of of a multicultural society and i'm not using that term to mean anything more than the fact that it is <laughs> full of different uh cultural groups interacting in, in in various ways creating something new and this idea that you have a a, a a norm and this is our tradition and either you conform to it or you know or you leave almost um, <laughs> or you're made to conform to it um is sort of one way of of, of conceiving that but uh, to do that it seems to me completely ignores the fact that that french you know, identity is is also formulated through you know French presence in in North Africa and around the world, and that it's it, you know that that um, one's identity emerges through interaction, uh, through cultural interaction, and so um, uh, it, it seems to me that it makes a lot more sense to think of a kind of a, a, a multicultural world as as not as this is our this is our way of doing things and you slot into it in a particular way but actually to look at what emerges through the interactions of of the the different groups of people that are interacting in a given time and place and and have done for 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 many generations in different ways and in different spaces so um now the british uh attitude is you know there's there's tended to be a kind of okay recognition of different sort of cultural rights, if you like, but but this can also be very simplistic because it can put people into little slots. You know, you're Hindu, you're supposed to perform Hinduness. You're Muslim, you're supposed to perform Muslimness. You know, this is how you know you have little books about you know how you're supposed to greet um, you know certain types of people. You know, if you meet this person, you mustn't shake hands because they you know their belief. So again, it, it can very easily develop into these kind of rather fixed. Uh, stereotypes in a sense where people are almost obliged to perform a kind of stereotyped version of what they're perceived to be um, but at the same time if you actually look at what uh, you know say young Islamic fashion designers are doing uh, precisely they're just what they're doing is they're looking at the, the range of different sort of cultural elements that they can play with and creating something new out of that and it seems to me that that's what we should be doing because it much more represents the life that we're all leading, that our lives are, are, are created or generated through all the different interactions and experiences that we have. So, um, yes, I may have gone slightly <laughs> off the point there. No, no, not at all. And uh, I can... I can hailing in yeah, the dark. I, I can, that would not be a London <laughs> podcast without a little bit of background <laughs> of rain. rain. Uh, uh, but so one last thing I maybe would like to talk about is uh, maybe going going away from the the semiotic of the clothing, mm. but maybe going back to uh, all, all what I was trying a little bit earlier to to describe, which is uh, the very physicality of the of the clothing mm. as a sort of operative politics, and and maybe if we go back to French le legislation uh, uh, that we can frankly call Islamophobic because mm. uh, it's been uh, although the law itself is, the text of the law itself is not is not uh, oriented towards uh, Muslim communities uh, the, the debates that that mm. were that made them happen were very much explicit about that but so the, the second law um, from 2009 uh, were uh, banning uh, uh, implicitly the, the niqab mm. um, explicitly uh, any forms of uh, hiding uh, faces mm. in the public space and uh, I mean one way to talk about it is, is also to just acknowledge the sort of the demagogy of, mm. of such a law because it, it actually doesn't uh, even I mean it's really a spectacular legislation that mm. concerns so so few mm. bodies in France. Mm. I mean, we're talking about, I think, it, uh, something something along the line of five thousand persons, maybe, yes. who, of the, yeah. on the entire national yes. territories that might be concerned by this legislation. But I, I don't think that's actually necessarily the right way to to approach the the. the I the have a Dutch colleague who's been working about uh, niqab. She's writing mm. a book on niqab in in Holland, and, and she, she reckons there's more journalists, you know, walking around yeah. in niqab to have the experience than there are actually <laughs> Muslim women wearing yeah. niqab in Holland. But, but uh, the the th the things that I find interesting in in this sort of uh, is in this sort of very. Uh, 
uh, fearful and uh, uh, a piece of legislation and discourses is um, is a question of dissimulation, mm. and uh, and that's where that's where this particular clause uh, is important in what it is, and uh, and this time it's not like it's not like for Gandhi, it is about mm. too too much, yes, <laughs> not too not too little, uh, so. I mean, yeah. I mean, which this? Um, it's it seems like it seems like uh, we we also require the other to be transparent to us, right? So, uh, I, I'd like to hear you a little bit about this particular aspect of of uh, dissimulated bodies and the sort of enforced transparency of the other that this sort of legislation uh, uh, allows. Yes, I mean, I think it's partly about enforced transparency of the other, <laughs> but I think it is also about. Uh, a kind of very restrictive uh, norm, you know, a kind of norm that doesn't have much extreme on either side in the French case. Um, or uh, there's somebody who's written a book recently called The, the Naked Rambler, where he, uh, called, sorry, called The um, Dress and the Naked Truth or something like that. And he has a chapter where he's, he's uh, talking about you know, the woman in, in niqab on the one hand and this guy called the naked rambler who's wandering around naked on the other and how both, in a sense, are are showing us that, you know, the norms of what we'll tolerate on either side in terms of covering and uncovering. And, and I think it's quite a useful way of looking at it because um, at some level it is about um, contesting those boundaries and... Uh, but in the French case, because um, the covering that goes with niqab is, you know, because it is also linked to a certain othering of a certain population, and because the extreme visibility of, of the niqab or total covering um, is also um, uh, makes it a very easy kind of shorthand for uh, portraying otherness, if you like. Um, so it, it's come to take on a, a, a very particular role. And I think, uh, you know, more generally in all these, uh, the way in which, you know, a sort of hostility uh, towards various types of Islamic clothing, uh, whether we're in France or, or any of the European countries and probably in America as well, this the full uh, burqa or, or, or niqab or, or total uh, covering is 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 becomes a kind of shorthand for everything else, and it gains a kind of representative status that it doesn't have. So you, you're right to bring up that that the fact that we're talking about really small numbers, but at the same time, it, it it's it's taken as as the face of Islam in general, if you like. So it, it's the sort of representativity that it, that it doesn't have in real life, but it becomes representative of a whole. Uh, way of perceiving Muslims in a sense so that I think that sort of mismatch between numbers and and um, and and the visibility that it has mm. I mean we had a big uh, niqab controversy here I think it was in I can't remember now I think it was 2006 uh, where Jack Straw who was um, a politician had asked um, Muslim women who came to see him if they would lift up um show their faces in, in interaction with him. So some of them were wearing uh, face veils. And this gained, you know, it became a massive controversy in the press. But, you know, what was striking was the images in the newspapers. You know, every newspaper, whatever it was, had these enormous images of, of women fully covered uh, from head to toe. And uh, almost as if, you know, the less you could see, the more you had to see what you couldn't see, you know. So you're kind of magnified and gazing in through this little slit where you could just see the eyes kind of thing. And I, I remember similarly being at a um, an event uh, here, which was a sort of pro-hijab kind of event, where there were sort of two, maybe three women in the audience that were fully covered, and everybody else was either wearing hijab or, or, or not. But but there were but it was the all the journalists were focused, all the photographers were focused on these these three women. Who, who who were most covered because that was the image they wanted and that was the image they were going to show, even though it was completely at odds with what the conference was about. So this this in a, in a sense that that uh, yes demand for transparency, but also the des- the kind of convenience with which you can take that image as the representative image, and as if it sort of codifies 
all that you don't like about Islam or whatever uh, in the way in which it's used, um, I think is also uh, very interesting and often very damaging in, in terms of its effects. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually, it made me remember a, a, a scene from a recent movie uh, I, I saw from this uh, uh, Paris-based uh, Iranian director, which I'm uh, awfully sorry, but I forgot his name. Yeah. Uh, a film called the, Ira- the Iranian, and it's basically right. it's basically him inviting uh, three uh, theologians from uh, from Tehran in his yeah. house in Tehran, yeah. and and talking with them, debating with them. Uh, him being the, the sort of uh, more French than French uh, uh, secular yeah. secular uh, 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 hero, and uh, and the others being the bad guys, uh, yeah. the bad uh, theologians, uh, and and there is this very uh, surreal scene where um, where they they're talking about the 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 forced uh, the forced uh, hijab in uh, uh, the the fact that mm. women in Iran are forced to mm. wear the hijab. I'm sorry. Uh, and and the theologians are are asking him, but tell me, like this is your house, like would mm. you allow a woman to be naked in your house? Mm. And and the, the director is like, oh no, 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 I would not permit that, obviously. Mm. But and so the theologian is like, well, we just don't agree on which degree, which degree, which degree of dissimulation. Yeah, uh, and and I thought it was. It was yeah. a fantastic scene uh, to see yeah. to see four men deciding yeah. what was yes. going to be the right degree of hiding <laughs> yes. the women of their society, <laughs> and uh, either either this director did not at all perceive the mm. weirdness, the awkwardness of the scene, or he's very uh, fair game and mm. he decided to show yeah. himself in in this horrible uh, uh, position. But in which case, I thought I thought this scene was very very uh, exemplary of yes. what what's. Br- What's wrong in the very way we ask questions, mm. basically? Yes, mm. and, and and where we draw those lines mm. as to what is the norm and what isn't. Uh, well, I feel very sorry because I got to be the one <laughs> doing a sort of transla- uh, a sort of conclusion here. But uh, Emma, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today mm. and uh, continuing the sort of. Uh, ongoing series of Archipelago's uh, podcast about about this uh, relationship between clothing and, and politics, which I, I find is a, is a fascinating uh, issue. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>